how do you respond to the difficult perplexities of life? Like this whole book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things I had said from the beginning when we opened up this book was this word vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or futility or futilities, or if you have the NIV, this meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. What I've said from the beginning as we opened up this book together was that word in the Hebrew is best translated the word breath. And my sermon illustration is leaving us actually now. Because I did this sermon in the winter so that every time you left the church, you could go outside and go, and you could see visually what I'm talking about here. Because that's the Hebrew word. It's the word breath. It's that vapor that appears for a while and leaves. And we've talked about a number of implications of this life as a breath. That it's it's fleeting, but it's also that it's perplexing. That the more we try to grasp onto it, the more it slips through our fingers. In fact, he says that would be the chasing after the wind. It's perplexing. You can't. There's no systematic way to understand how the breath will go. The difficult perplexities of life. How do you respond to the difficult perplexities of life? This section in Ecclesiastes, over the previous you know, four chapters, he's talked about a lot of these difficult perplexities of life. He's taking us on a tour of this perplexing breath. He's taken us, we've talked about possessions and how you can have possessions, but you can have no joy. You can have no ability to enjoy them. He's talked about this absurd proposition he made, that the day of death... And the day of adversity is better than the day of mirth. He's talking about this absurd, this absurd statement that both the good days and the bad days are both from the hand of God. And who can figure that out? He's talked about the reality of our human condition. That none of us are absolutely righteous and none of us are absolutely wise and no one of us knows the future. And then last week he, he talked about this uh, frustration that we're all subject to authorities above us who at times we question their wisdom and the decisions that they make and are frustrated. And in fact, we talked about the humility of this constrained view of understanding who we are where none of us is truly wise and no one knows the future. And these are the day-to-day frustrations of life. These are the day-to-day frustrations when you're, when you're going semester after semester or you're going week after week in your workplace. These are the daily frustrations of life, not to mention when that day of adversity actually comes and you're faced with a crisis. But how do you respond to all of these difficult perplexities? And, and, and actually, he starts this passage, I want to, this is the verse we finished with last week, but um, I want to I want to start here, because this kind of sums it all up. Like, this sums it all up. And listen to the frustration in this verse, Ecclesiastes 8.14, there's a vanity, there's a breath, here's, here's, here's a breath, here's a perplexing breath for you. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deed of wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said also, this is just a perplexing breath. This is vanity. This idea that it seems, as far as if you look at life, and you look at, are people able to live a happy life, a successful life, a life in which everything seems to fall into place, or or a life of calamity and adversity and trouble, 
it would seem as if it doesn't matter how we live at all. It seems like the, there are the wicked who experience all the good stuff. There's the righteous people who experience all the bad stuff. Doesn't matter at all how we live in this breath. And this is an actual, this is painful. This is the reality that drove Asaph to his doubt in Psalm 73, which is my favorite psalm in the Bible. It's a psalm of Asaph's doubt. And Asaph, in Psalm 73, he recounts, he actually tells very honestly and openly how he nearly walked away from God. He nearly walked away from God because he was so frustrated in this observation about reality that it seems that it doesn't actually matter whether you live a virtuous life or a wicked life as far as the outcomes of how successful and prosperous you are. This is what he says in Psalm 73. Just to recap, he says in Psalm 73, uh, actually saying, um, he says, As for me, my feet had nearly stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Like, I nearly walked away from God. That's what he's saying here. I almost walked off the path. I nearly walked away from God. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on and he lists. Uh, he starts to list here. I, I cut out some verses, but he says they have no pangs until death. They, like they live carefree lives. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he goes on and on and on. And then he says, concludes verse twelve. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in which in riches. And then he gets very personal. And he says. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Do you see that word vanity there? All in vain? What's the point of living a righteous life? When, as it says, what's the point of living a righteous life when it says there are some righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked? Of the righteous. Now, Psalm 73 is one of my favorite verses. It is my favorite psalm. And Asaph ultimately refound his footing when he gained a new perspective on who God was and God's goodness. Right? He, he, he ultimately finds his footing. In fact, there's a part in the verse, and I just want to kind of speak to you guys. This is not part of my sermon at all. But there's a verse he says in Psalm 73 where he says, If I would have spoken like this, I would have betrayed a generation of your people. And, and actually what, what he actually says is saying there is, if I would have spoken in the midst of my frustration and the perplexities of life, and I would have started teaching people that they should give up on God and walk away, I would have betrayed the reality that I understood when I came to a greater perspective of who God was. And, and I say this kind of just because this is, I don't know. I, what I see on the internet sometimes and in blogs is that we have to live every, every instance of our life out in public and counsel everybody about every aspect of the, our struggle in our faith. And I do believe you should be open with your struggles and be sharing them with your friends. But Asaph is counseling us against writing a blog post about why I gave up on the church. Because you don't know if you're going to have to regret all of those words in a year. That's what he says. He says, if I would have spoken like this, I would have betrayed a generation of your people. Because ultimately I came back to a confident perspective of who God is and what he's doing. But how about you? 
How do you respond when you're faced with life's perplexities? With life's difficulties? How do you respond? How do you respond when you're faced with injustice or or faced with adversity? Or, Or when you're faced with God's silence? Or any of the other myriad of ways that God's ways confuse us? perplexed us, and, and to, if we're honest, in some ways, God's ways disappoint us. How do you respond? Well, in this chapter that we read earlier, Solomon gives his answer, and his answer should shock us. His answer should almost surprise us. And, and this answer that he's given us is the heart of the positive case and the positive argument he's making through this book. It's the absolute climax of Solomon's argument, his thesis of how we are to respond to the chabel, to the, the breath of life. And he's already given us allusions to this answer throughout this book, but this is where he unpacks it for us. And I know that there are some of the girls in our, in our university, um, in our congregation, they were going through Ecclesiastes, they were reading it together every Monday morning, even before I started the sermon series, they were doing this. And they were like, it was such a difficult book to motivate us to get us up to go to work, because it was like, every day we're reading it, and it's like, nah, everything's, they must have been reading out of the NIV, because it was like, meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. And I said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? The whole point of the book is to counter that uh, idea of that we should give up. And this is the positive argument in the book right here. Surprised by joy. Because Solomon's answer is that we should not give up. We, we cannot give up. We cannot walk away. We cannot be overcome with anxiety or, or, or even that we can't even try to change or fix those difficult perplexities of life. But this is his answer. Here's his answer, his recommendation as his response to this habel, these difficult perplexities of life. Here is his recommendation for our response. And I commend joy. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. I love that expression. I commend joy. It's like, Solomon, let me ask you a question, Solomon. I, I'm facing all these difficult perplexities of life. I'm facing all this adversity and this toil. How should I respond? Should I run away? Should I give up? Should I let it overpower me? And Solomon's like, hmm. Have you tried joy? I, I would try joy. I love that word, I commend it. Like, here it is for you. Try this. Try joy. I commend it. How are we to respond to the difficult perplexities of life? Solomon, in this book, has carefully weighed all the options and comes out with this commendation of joy. There's nothing better than to be joyful. He's going to explain this to us so that we can be assured he's not crazy. But first, he's going to give us some reasons for this. He's going to kind of recap some of his arguments, giving us reasons for why he commends joy to us. Okay, and here are three reasons why we, why there's no other path. There's no other path forward in our life than joy when we're confronted with life's perplexing difficulties. So the first commendation is, here's why. Here's why there's no other path other than joys. It's because the perplexities of life are unsolvable. He says... 
When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that they cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much men may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even if a wise man, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And Solomon's first reason to commend joy as a response to the difficult perplexities of his life is that you are not going to find out any way to fix life. Somebody told me this, I think I was at a conference this year and a pastor was leading a conference and he said something that has really stuck with me as wisdom. And he said, one of the first principles of life is that we should know the difference between a problem and reality. And he was talking about your your ministry will be much fruitful and joyful if you can understand the difference between what is a problem and what is reality. Problems are there to seek solutions for. Like for a problem, we try to understand the problem, we try to diagnose the problem, and we try to solve the problem. Reality cannot be solved. Reality cannot be fixed. Reality is what is. And if you spend your time and you spend your life trying to solve reality, it is going to cause you great frustration. It will be the chasing after the wind. Reality cannot be fixed. It only can be adjusted to. It only can be responded to. And so what Solomon is saying here, the first reason why I commend joy rather than this frustration of chasing after the wind is because if you try to fix reality, if you try to understand reality, if you try to understand God's ways, you will not be able to and you'll end in frustration. There is a... There's an existential relief that comes when you realize that reality is not to be solved. Reality is not to be fixed, and reality is not even to be figured out. It's actually to be accepted and to be adjusted to. I can stop striving against it. I can start trying to understand what's a better way to respond to it. This book gives us some great wisdom. I I love Ecclesiastes for the wisdom that he gives us. The second reason why Solomon commends joy is to say this, that God holds it all in his hands. You can't figure him out, and you can't figure out his ways, and you can't figure out this life, life but rest assured, it's all in his hands. He says, I laid all this to heart, chapter 9, verse 1, I laid all of this to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who doesn't sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. See, he's speaking to the one who fears God. And we're going to come back to this in a bit. But he says, if you truly understand God, if you truly respect Him, acknowledge Him for who He is, we know that we can't figure out all of God's ways, but we know that we can trust all that God does. And then He holds all of this in His 
hands. The righteous, the wise, and their deeds are in the hands of God. No one escapes the sovereign care and his judicial oversight. He, God sees us all for who we are. He searches every heart. And then, his third argument for why we are to pursue joy, or why we would pursue joy, it's because if you come face to face with the perplexing difficulties of life, I know that there's a response within many of us to simply pack it up, give it up, and be paralyzed. But now is not the time for paralysis. Life is the time for living. Right? That's what what he says. He says there's an evil that's done under the sun. The same event happens to them all. The same event he's speaking about, he goes on to say, is death. Also, in the hearts of the children, men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts where they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. The living know that they all die, but the dead know nothing. They have no reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Solomon's third point seems to be that now, under the sun, in this life, we talked about under the sun meaning not only this life with, it's not a life without God, but it is in this temporal, temporal life that we live, our lifespan. Our lifespan, the time that you're alive is not a time to figure out all of God's ways. It's not going to happen. The time that your life, that is given to you in your life, is not the time to have a grand explanation of all God's plans, not the time to have everything figured out, but it is the time for action. It is the time for you to do something. It's not the time to retreat from life and to be paralyzed in our life and to say, I can't face this difficult reality. It is the time now to do something. That's what he's saying. It's a a, a live dog is better than a, a dead lion. Solomon is not denying in these verses, he's not denying the idea of an afterlife by saying the dead know nothing, have no reward, and they're forgotten. Solomon, listen, Solomon's clear in his book. In fact, the more I've studied, the more I studied the book of Ecclesiastes, I went on a rant on this in the class a couple, week, uh, like last week, I forget which class I was in. Oh, it was our small group. <laughs> it was our small group on Thursday night. Solomon believed that there is a life after this one, that there is life after this period of under the sun. He has said already in chapter 3, verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He expects that there is a time when we will face God after death and face our maker in judgment. That is the time. But this is the time to live. This is the time, not for paralysis, not for retreat. It's the time for action. Staying in your bed with covers over your head so that you can escape life is not the way. I, I think there's some wisdom. I, 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 you know, my brother, he struggles with some mental health issues, struggles with depression. And that's one thing we continually keep on telling him. If you can get out of bed and do one thing, do it. You gotta build that momentum. Now is the time. Today is the time to live. It's the time for life. And, and no matter what perplexing difficulties you may face, today is the time to live. Solomon says, "I'm not. You're not going to figure this all out." Oh, uh, hey, Trevor. This. Uh, I think you clicked something up there. Can you? Can you put it all back? Uh, present. There you go. 
Sweet. So right now is not the time to figure everything out. You've got to know that God has everything in His hands. He, He is in control and He has it all figured out. But this is the time to live. And so now, why? So now Solomon says here, so this is why I commend as a great response, as a great way to live, as a great way to get out of bed every morning. This is what I commend to you. I commend to you the joyful life. He's going to unpack it for us. And there's four, four things that he, that he impacts for us when he, when he speaks about this joyful life. I commend joy for, we're going to unpack this joy in four ways in these next verses. I commend joy, the first joy he commends to us is the joy of a clean conscience. The joy of a clean conscience. He says, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Number one, all of you guys who from Baptist backgrounds are like, that verse is in the Bible? (laughs) Right? Listen, the second half of the verse is important for understanding the first. Okay, when he says God has already commended or God has already approved what you do, or he's already accepted your works, as one translation said, Solomon's not suggesting that God's just ambivalent up there. There's nothing in Solomon's thought in Proverbs, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, or any of the books of the Bible that Solomon wrote where he'd ever suggest to us that God's up there ambivalent about what you do. Ah, whatever you do, that's okay with me. I approve of all of it. That is not what Solomon is saying. He is writing, and he's already, particularly in this section of Ecclesiastes, he has said it actually a number of times. In chapter 7, verse 18, he says, the one who fears God will come out from both of them. In eight twelve, he says, it will be well for those who fear God, and it will not be well for those who do not fear before God. And so he's already kind of given us the context that to you who fear God, meaning you who acknowledge God and observe his commands, God has approved what you do because you are doing, that person is doing what the Lord has revealed in his word to be good, righteous, true, perfect, and beautiful. Like if you're following, if you're chasing after God and and, and you're, you're chasing after God, that you might live your life according to his ways, then it is completely true that you, that he's approved of what you're doing because you're doing right. That, that person who has a clean conscience because they're the one who fears God, they can eat because they eat to the glory of God. That person can take their wine with merriment. Because they know that they're not, they know that they have cultivated self-control that is not going to give way to drunkenness. Living with a clean conscience is a freeing, joyful thing. It is such a freeing thing to have a clear conscience. To live your life with no secrets, to live your life with no secret sin. To live your life without the worry that someone's going to dig up some skeleton in your closet or, or someone's going to expose something of your life that you do not want to be exposed. That is what living in the light is. And it is so freeing. This doesn't mean that we're perfect. This is the verses that we read every week. Right? Just so I read it again. We read this when we're doing our confession every week. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. 
If we fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. This doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we are walking in perfection. What it means is we're walking in the light and, and we're exposing our life. We're constantly exposing our lives to the light of God. We're exposing our light. We're, we're, we're presenting ourselves under God's word and under God's watchful eye and under the sword of the Holy Spirit able to discern between our thoughts and our hearts. And we're coming exposing our lights. We're, we're coming clear. If we say we have no sin, he goes on to say, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is what walking in the light is, not walking into perfection. It's walking with a cleansed conscience because we've, we've come under God's gaze. Now, if you do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ, you might think that is ridiculous. How could I bring my sin into God's gaze when God is holy and he would righteously condemn me? He goes on to say why. It is because, he says, I'm not saying this so that you would sin all the more. But if any of you sin, I want you to know we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiating sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Meaning, listen, there's no sin that you could do that his grace is not sufficient to cover. He says basically, if if these words are hard for you, this is what he's saying. Jesus stands before God for you in two ways. First, he is your advocate, meaning he is your defense attorney. He is standing on your side, pleading your case before the Father. He is your advocate with the Father. He is standing on your side, on your behalf, saying, Father, accept this one into your light. What is his defense? If he's your defense attorney, what is his defense? His defense is this. I have paid for his or her sins. I have paid it all. There's nothing that they could do that I have not paid for. I stand before you as their defense attorney offering this defense. I have paid it. I've paid it. Hallelujah. If you know Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. They are paid for. They have been dealt with. Jesus Christ stood on your behalf, in your place, on the cross, accepting the wrath of God on your behalf. The propitiation, the payment for sin has been made. And you can walk in the light. You fear now no condemnation. You fear nothing. Because he's on your side. If God is for us, who can stand against us? And so this is why you can have joy. The first joy is go and eat and drink with a merry heart for God's approved what you do because you're walking in the light. You're seeking to follow his ways. It's a joyful thing to have a cleansed conscience. It's amazing. Secondly, he speaks of the joy of a confident presentation. I love this. He says, let your garments be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. What is he talking about? Like, I almost did it. I, 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 so one, of, one of our Chinese sisters came back from China and they brought me a dazzling white silk 
like Chinese pajamas. I don't know how else to describe them. Like they are dazzling white. And I thought maybe I should wear that this morning, but it would have blinded you all. I wear them at home when I want to annoy my family. Um, (laughs) It's amazing. But the second aspect to this joyful life Solomon commends is to live our lives with a confident presentation. This idea between behind the white garments and the oil on their head. Remember when King David, he had sinned, he had confessed his sin to the Lord, but he was waiting to see whether his child would die. And he was fasting, and he was praying, and he was mourning, and he was crying, and he was weeping. It said he didn't get up off the ground. And he was praying. And then he heard that his son had passed away, actually. And David, what he did was, they actually confused people at that time, because that's the time that they thought, thought that David would mourn. But instead, David tells them, no, when my, my son, when I didn't know if he was going to die, I, I was praying and interceding on his behalf. But now that he has passed away, I know I have to face life. And so what he does is he gets up. And he puts on clean clothes. He washes himself, it says. He washes himself. And he puts on clean clothes and says, and he anoints his head. Right? Because, because his time of mourning is finished. And he's now presenting himself to the world once again. And that's what Solomon is counseling here. The, the idea is that we present ourselves ready to face these perplexing discouragements and, uh, and difficult perplexities of life where we face ready to walk into the future and face whatever life may throw with or to us. And that's what I'm talking about. The one who fears God, the one who fears God and the one who has the sins forgiven, we have, we have every reason to get up in the morning ready to face the perplexing difficulties of life. Because if God is for us, as I said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is there ready to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen, you can get out of bed every day, wash your face, go to work, greet the difficulties of life, because Christ has died, has risen, and is seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? If His grace is truly sufficient to us, you can stand and you can live. If His power is truly made perfect in our weakness, you can stand and you can live. If we truly have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the power is not from us, it's from God, then you can stand and you can live. If we truly possess, are possessed by and, and, and have the spirit of the living God alive in us, pulsing through our body, making our face shine, making you want to put on white garments, anointing your head in oil and greeting the world, you can stand and you can live. If you're in Christ, what can the world do to you? Man, even if they kill you. What is it? Seriously. Even if they kill you. This great YouTube clip, it's John Piper 
preaching on the passage in Corinthians, I'm convinced that our light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the glory that would be revealed in us. And he goes on and on about these light and momentary afflictions. They are light and they are momentary. And it does not matter what you face in the perplexity difficulties of life. It does not matter the reality that you face. It cannot, it cannot take away the enduring glory that God has reserved for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Amen. So you can get up and live and face the world with joy. Third, he talks about the joy of close relationships. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life He's given you under the sun. That's your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. The third aspect of this joyful life relates to the simple truth that most of the joy in your life and mine will come from these close, personal relationships. The people that God places in your life as gifts. Your supreme joy in life will not come by the circumstance. It will come by the people you share those circumstances with. Joy is not an individual pursuit. It's something we share with others. He's saying you find joy, you live joy by enjoying the people around you, these people you care about. He specifically mentions a wife, but not, not all of us find a wife. It's fine. Friends, children, parents, brothers and sisters, these are all gifts to us and people with whom we can enjoy life together. Take the moment to appreciate, to enjoy them. Rejoice with them, laugh with them, dance with them, affirm them, appreciate them, encourage them and know them. He says our spouses, our friends and children are our portion. We have some newly married couples in here. Congratulations. Enjoy one another. And don't feel guilty for enjoying one another. And don't feel guilty to say, I'm taking this time in my life to enjoy my wife, my husband. We've got some new parents in here. Hold your kids and enjoy them. They grow up fast. You students, you're in college, you've got these roommates that you spend all your life with. It is such a unique and special time in your life. Enjoy them. So many people in our generation are spending their lives behind a phone. Texting friends without actually making real contact. Human contact. With the people that actually will bring joy into their life. Call an old friend this week. Call them on the phone. Call them. Like your generation doesn't call people anymore, right? You just text. In fact, it's almost rude if you call someone. Why would they call me? They could have just texted me. Forget that. Go call a friend this week. Say, how are you doing? Say, can we meet up? I haven't seen you. I'd love to see you. Invite someone over. Have someone over to your house. You will be blessed. Uh, there's a song that I put on that Ecclesiastes playlist um, that I put on our Facebook and stuff like that. 
It's by Matthew West. It's called The Beautiful Things We Miss. It's about this wife who gets herself all dressed up for when her husband comes home. She puts on this dress that she knows. At one time she said, oh, hey, he said, you look really good in that dress. So she puts it all on. She gets her makeup all ready and her hair all ready. And he comes home and he completely does not notice any of it. And the, I put that song in the Ecclesiastes playlist. The chorus of that so captures this book, this, this argument Solomon's making. He says, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to look back someday and find everything that really mattered was in front of me this whole time. Open up my eyes, Lord. Keep me in the moment just like this before the beautiful things we love become the beautiful things we miss. And the the bridge says, we don't get to rewind. There's no such thing as next time. Help me to remember that we don't get this back. They were right when they said don't blink. It goes faster than you think. Lord, help me remember the beautiful things. I love you guys. And so much in my life, I'm content to, to be in front of a phone, to be in front of a computer, to be isolated and alone. Solomon says, now go enjoy the wife you love. The last thing he says, the last part of this joy is this joy of contented work. Whatever your hand, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to where you're going. Again, now is the time to live. Now, now this is weird. How is work a conduit of joy? We've been actually cautioned in Ecclesiastes from trying to grasp the wind by finding our significance in our jobs. So that, that's not what he's saying here. In Genesis 3, we understand we, the work of our labor has become toilsome because of the curse. But Solomon here suddenly turns and paints a positive picture of our work. Work is toil if you see it as something you can extract your identity or significance from. It's not there. But work is joyful if you accept it and you take it as it is and you find joy in the knowledge that God has granted it to you and given it to you as a gift to to use for His glory. See, the ancient world understood that good work was a conduit of joy. The Jewish conception of happiness understood that joy was derived from the blessed path of walking and working according to God's purpose. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night, and he's like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Solomon's advice is consistent with Psalm 1. To the one who fears and finds his significance in God, it doesn't matter what you do, whatever you do, do it with all your might. And the New Testament would add, to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Solomon's saying. Young people, particularly, what Solomon's saying is you don't need to find your passion 
before you can find joy in your work. You can do, you can be working Starbucks, you can be working Subway, and you can be cheerily working with all your might. I used to love working retail. I did. I sold shoes for a couple of years. And it just, it was for me as a Christian, it was like every single person that I meet, how can I bring joy into their life? And make commission off of selling those shoes. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I used to love it. People could come in angry and frustrated with their kids and, and you work in retail. You're just working a job, but you can bring joy to people. You can bring glory to God by how you're working with your might. He's not saying, don't find your passion. (laughs) And we're not saying that either. What he is saying, whatever hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. We've all been given tasks to do throughout this life. Some of them we naturally like. Some of them we naturally don't like. We've all been given tasks to do. It doesn't matter what we feel about them. Receive them and do them with your might to the glory of God. This is your lot. Solomon said that time and time and time again. So now is the time for living, for doing, for joy. There's perplexities. Listen, you're not going to understand. You're not going to figure out life. You're not going to solve the problem of life. It's impossible. The one who fears God will come out from them all. It will go well with the one who fears God. The one who knows Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, you know, you know this. I I, I just simply am reminding you of this. You know the joy of a clean conscience. You know the, 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 the Psalm 32, how happy is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. And in him, the Lord cannot find any iniquity. Not because he's perfect, but because he's forgiven. You know the joy of a clean conscience. You know the joy of the confidence of walking, sometimes walking in that love of God. You know the joy that comes when you're building meaningful connections with the people closest to you in life. And you know the joy of resting after a hard day's work. Solomon is saying, this is, this is got to be our posture when we face these difficulties. And praise be to God. He gives us that grace. 